Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast of the classical world put on by three classical educators at Veritas Academy in Austin, Texas. My name is Graham Donaldson, and I am joined with Arthur Jan Hannenberg. Wugachagas. <laughs> and Mr. Thomas Magby. Hello. And what I understand today is, Thomas, you are going to be talking to us about uh, a book. So the past three podcasts, as you may have noticed, we were all talking about books. Uh, we didn't talk about a lot of books. And Thomas, you're going to be talking to us about a book about written book. by a classical educator. That is correct. And this is not a desperate attempt to uh, uh, to try to attract the listenership of said classical educator. No, yes, no. Is. Wait, 100% <laughs> it is. Wait, oh. wait. So if you are well, Joshua returning? Gibbs, yeah. classical educator... First of all, welcome for you to your first episode of Classical <laughs> you Stuff You is? Should Know. I guess we'll find out. Because we are talking about your book. Well, let's at least be respectful. It's pronounced Jibs. Jibs. <laughs> <laughs> That's much more entertaining. Um, do that. Goshua so, Jibs. <laughs> um, so, Thomas, I have never read this book. I don't think Thomas has read this book. Thomas has read this book. Oh, sorry, AJ. AJ, AJ I don't think AJ has read this book. No. Um, I was going to say, if Thomas hasn't read it, isn't that a What are we doing here? Yeah, uh, it is. This uh, is a we're book. It has book. pages. Blue cover. It's about 10 inches tall. Here's what Amazon thinks. No one-star reviews, just to um, preempt your yeah, yeah, I won't. So who is this man, and no, no. why are we talking about him? Just to clarify, there are no one-star reviews, is what I'm saying. Oh, really? Yeah, so anyway, so that means that... I figured if we were tr- going to attract, trying to attract his listenership, maybe so reading funny. the like bad reviews of his book was not the way to go. No, I was going to... I think the takeaway is that this book is better than the last two that we've covered. <laughs> it's so. better than what? Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Yeah, I guarantee you there's one-star reviews of the Iliad. And yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this book is better than all of those. Yes, today we're going to be talking about a book called How to Be Unlucky. It, it was written by Joshua Gibbs, who is a classical educator, and is a, as far as I know is yeah is a classical educator. So I have some biographical information here, but uh, I, you all have had interaction with this person before. But our, our listeners have not. vaguely. Let's, yeah, uh, well, I'm just I'm wondering if you all what what do you all know about this person? Um, he is a teacher at our names our, our school named our after us name. yep. clearly <laughs> uh, at Veritas Academy in Virginia yeah Richmond Virginia Richmond Virginia yeah. and uh, he has well, a great big bushy he's beard he's got a giant beard mm-hmm. and sometimes we interact with each other at the Society for Classical Learning conference yeah so he's often a speaker there mm-hmm. so i've only been to one Society for Classical Learning SCL conference before and he was i think he was one of the keynotes and then also did a couple of the breakout sessions he's as well he's very tall I feel like this story is going to turn into like John Bunyan. He's like, <laughs> he's 20 feet tall and he's all he's blue. Gonna, he's got a beard. Yeah, and he, he chops an down trees. Yeah, exactly. All the time. Yeah, that sounds about right. The, I'm just reading he off speaks of... speaks only in lines of from ancient books. <laughs> I, I kind of wish... Wouldn't that be in, cool? Don't, I wish I... If oh, I had memorized I have enough I, ancient literature to speak yeah. only in lines from ancient books. Be impressive. I have an, uh, uh, an idea kicking around that we do a podcast completely done in iambic pentameter. We're going to have to work on it, but... I would it be worth it? Would we? Would people listen to that? Um, Shakespeare's still popular. <laughs> I guess that's true, but <laughs> and we're it's not. purely because of the meter. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you are clearly getting the right classical world is here for you all. <laughs> Prepare to, to, to sit and hear the voice of us, <laughs> of three reason. dudes. Oh wow, this is who love to teach the young and old. I'm kind of good at this. Here, this is right. fun. Yes. See, this is going to be a lot easier than we thought. Well, all right, okay, so. In a, so just for more background, Josh Gibbs, so we just said this, teaches at Veritas School in Richmond, Virginia. He teaches medieval literature. Oh, great. Right. So so some of the same, maybe, do you, do you know if you teach any of the same books? Uh, Paradise Lost, I'm sure. I mean, is my guess. Uh, and so one of the books that he teaches as a part of that course is uh, Boethius, mm-hmm. The Constellation of Philosophy. Yeah, I like to teach it. We haven't taught it. Um, I know he teaches um, uh, The uh, Rule of St. Benedict. 
which I think is kind of fun. That's cool. Um, and then I think he, there's you know makes kids write their own rule of life. I've done a version of that assignment where I've made my leadership boys write a rule of life, and none of them stuck to it, and I didn't have a good <laughs> methodology of keeping them honest on their rule of life. So it devolved into madness and chaos. I had my kids think about what they wanted to do with their summers and then like would send them emails to see how that was going. Mm, and good. not to say that any one of them was perfect in it, but a few of them were like, oh, I totally forgot about this mm-hmm. and got back to it. Anyway, so yeah, he one of the books he teaches is The Constellation of Philosophy, which is a book that we covered on episode 52, which is our was our live episode for the Paideia Conference here in Austin. So if you are interested in learning more about that book, I'd recommend reading it first off. And then if you want to hear a, a far too short overview, episode 52 is where we do that. So this book, How to Be Unlucky, is an autobiography that Josh Gibbs is telling through... I guess through the context of the constellation of philosophy. So he is pairing up quotes from the book with things that are happening in his life. And then his reflections are tied back ultimately to things that are happening in the constellation of philosophy. I, I guess I'll, I, we were kind of joking about this a second ago that there are no one star reviews. Also, it's just, it's a very good book. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And Graham has asked, Graham keeps asking me if I finished it and I think it's cause he wants to borrow it, but I'm going to make him buy a copy of it because I just think everyone should. So yeah, just look it up. Amazon, How to Be Unlucky. I highly recommend picking Am it up. Am I made of money? Well, you're made of the $12 or whatever it costs <laughs> to buy this book. So I am made of much more. I thank you very much. Well, then Yeah, he's got, a little, oh, he's got a little extra in the Ooh. middle. Oh, wow. I did just even talk <laughs> no, about it. It is $15.99, so well worth $16 for knowledge. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to – my plan for this is just to go through and read a couple of sections from the book, and then we can talk about them. So, again, this Great. is not an old book. This is a book by a classical educator, so someone who is doing the same thing. Who thinks about old books. He does think about old mm-hmm. books and is attempting to connect those old books to modern life. I mean, that's kind of what the bo- what this book is about. It's like a written podcast. I, I guess that's what a book is. <laughs> yeah, isn't that what books <laughs> happening right now? Sorry. So this songs are sung podcast. <laughs> just everything is a podcast. All right. So this first section is going to be the longest just because it's, it's so good. It's so good. And mm-hmm. you can try and stop me, but it won't work. Does anyway. this book have a thesis? Is this a book of nonfiction? What is this book? What is its goal? What is it doing? Is it an autobiography? Let me, is read, it a... let me read this first section and it will give you, okay. I think, as much an answer as you could be looking for. There are a few issues, this is, so again, this is the opening of the book, so like first sentence. There are a few issues about which American Christians are more confused and less consistent than the matter of goodness. I was embarrassingly old by the time I first heard a robust answer to the question, why be good? A man wants his little son to grow up and become a good man. He wants his son to get a good job and marry a good woman. He wants to attend a good church and to believe the doctrines of his church that uh, and to believe the doctrines his church espouses. He wants friends, and even if his friends do not attend the same church he does, he wants to say of certain friend, I believe different things than I do about, he believes different things than I do about God, but he is still a good man. He loves God, takes care of his wife, and loves his children. On the occasion of his 10th wedding anniversary, a man enjoys taking his wife out for a good dinner, and when his daughters begin to cry at having a babysitter and an early bedtime, a man says, be a good girl and run along. He goes through a series of more examples of how we do want good things. However, if there is an open Bible nearby, one should not expect a man to speak lucidly of goodness, for an open Bible will remind the man that all have sinned and none is righteous, and his discussion of goodness will turn to gibberish. He will tell you that all sin is the same, all sin is absolute, and that serial killers and saints are no different in the eyes of God. 
He will set aside all the passages of Scripture which declare that Noah was blameless, or that Abraham was justified by works, or that Lot was just, or that Job was perfect and upright, or that numerous kings of Israel did that which was right in the sight of God, or that John the Baptist was just and holy, or that Jesus Christ himself spoke of the righteous on many occasions. Rather, he will claim with some pride that so far as God is concerned, our good works are nothing more than filthy rags, and that every act of generosity or charity in human history has been tainted by secretly selfish motives. He will tell you only God is good, and that God refuses to share his glory with another, and that he will prove to you just how holy God is by describing the kind of eternal and excruciating torture a man deserves for committing the most trivial of sins. In fact, God's goodness is more or less incomprehensible apart from fantasies where an elaborate pain is dreamed up for the most benign of sinners, as the louder such suffering is declared deserved, the more clearly God's goodness is seen. Then we castigate man-pleaser. Oh, um, he says a little more about this in a second. But so that I would say that is what he's getting at with his book. So that, defense of, good, of the good. Why should the Christian man be good yes. and care about goodness. And the confusion that we have in talking mm-hmm. about goodness mm-hmm. that... Whenever a Bible is nearby. Yes. So <laughs> we, yeah, whenever it's not around, we can say we want good things, but with the Bible, we're very wary to call anything good. Yeah. Because we, because it's... Or say that someone should pursue it. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a fair assessment of a, my experience of modern Christianity is, is that um, you get into these intellectual games of, of saying like, well, yeah, um, um, yeah, a serial killer and a saint uh, have sort of moral equivalents of their life's works because all have sinned. I, yep. I definitely kn- remember hearing that argument or even myself making that argument as a young man. I have had students say all sin is, is the he, same yes. in, the eyes of God, in the eyes of God. And I say, I don't, I find me a verse. Yeah. <laughs> one that says is, that. And that's one we've been coming back to in my leadership class a few times. And to say that, so in James where it says that if you, if you commit any sin, you are... Um, I should probably Google this before I just pretend to be quoting scripture. But if you've committed one sin, you're guilty of the whole law. So that that's the part that you can jump in and say. It's a jump, though, to say then that all sins are equal because of that. Mm-hmm. But there is something in that. Well, that and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Any, sure. any sin is worthy of death. And I think that they are all in that category. Any sin gets you death. People then assume that all sins are equal. But I don't find that borne out in scripture, right? Yeah. There are several verses that say there are sins that God hates. Lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. The boastful pride of life. There are sins that are blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. There are sins that are clearly worse to God than other ones. He says, I hate these things that you do yep. instead of, I don't like that sometimes you're a little cross with your little sister, mm-hmm. right? It's, I find that the grand majority of scripture just describes some things as clearly worse than other things. Yeah, later on that same page I was reading before, any passage in scripture which seems to suggest that what a man does with his life actually matters is written off by the atoning work of Christ. For we do not believe Christianity as a religion which helps a man fight temptation, but a religion which helps man get away with evil. We are apt to say these things when studying the atonement or the fall, and then turn around and expect our sons and daughters to wash the dishes, study hard, refrain from drugs, read their Bibles, abstain from pornography, and keep dignified opinions on art and music. We castigate man-pleasers, condemn selfishness, tell our children that God cannot be pleased, and then tell our children to not behave like animals. For whom? That's how he ends that paragraph. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that's a fair, that's a fair assessment. Is, um, um, I've never read the book. I know he uh, gave a, a talk at SCL, which was uh, made the assertion that our students... Christians, young Christians don't know what Christians do. Yep. They know what Christians don't do or we're not, they're not supposed to do. But I think the line was, 
giving to the poor and playing basketball were moral equivalents because they were both not sinning in that moment. Um, so there's 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 a lack of of understanding of what is the actual work of of of, of Christians. I mean, uh, tracing this history, I think this 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 came back. You know, um, I think of I think of sort of the Billy Graham crusades of the of the mid twentieth century, and this emphasis on God's saving work for you is true. But it, I, th- I feel like it was probably it seemed to be correcting some kind of perceived fault in the churches, and perhaps that perceived fault was was working right. for your salvation. And so you had this correction, and now we've sort of lived with that correction being the biggest thing, and now we've kind of swung the other way, and that we've sort of got this license to sin, but we've got you know the insurance card to get out of hell. Um, uh, I remember uh, one of a pastor that I had. Um, say like you know our generation's problem is not going to be legalism like thomas you aj you graham i I, we are not going to very easily become legalistic people our our generation's problem and the the, the church's generation's problem is going to be licentiousness Mm -hmm. like giving license to things and that license is coming from the grace we've received in god therefore we're like oh we've gotten grace therefore like you know, my I, these bad things, I can just repent of them and feel real bad, and I'm just a broken person, but God loves broken people, so good to go. So the one one thing I also noticed when I started studying the classics yeah. and studying scripture and having come from a Christian background, it's that all growing up, good works were espoused for only two reasons. One, one because God has asked it of you and you should obey, and two, because you would do it out of gratitude for what God has done, which are great reasons to do good things. Yep. But they're disjointed from an understanding of what virtue can bring to human life. Mm-hmm. And when I started yeah. studying, say, Aristotle, Plato, any, any ancient writer who wrote on the subject of ethics, they said virtue is good in and of itself for the following reasons, right? They could tell you that virtue brings man peace, that virtue can bring man happiness, that a virtuous man is a happy, healthy, well-put-together person mm-hmm. who enjoys the world. The and life of the courageous person is going to be better, better than the life, life of, of the, the coward. Of the coward, exactly. Yeah. And Even if you don't have any avenues of needing courage, even if the, all, the cur- all the courage you need are just the small little things of life. Talking that, to a teacher that frightens you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That yeah. life is going to be a, a more enjoyable, healthier, happier one that, you know, virtue is its own reward. And that's the, that's the classical understanding of virtue. And so virtue is its own. Yeah. Because I was never taught that in school, because I was never taught that in church. I I never learned that virtue helps a person to be well-ordered and happy, Mm -hmm. right? That's, that's what virtue brings. And I could see that message in scripture as well, right? That, but, but the message I was getting from church was not that be virtuous because it will bring you happy and it's will bring you closer to God. It was, yeah. Be virtuous because God says to, and because you're thankful. Um, but do you not feel any discomfort in saying that some? I'm I'm, I'm oversimplifying, so please push back after I say this. But sure. you're saying that some lives are better than others. That some lives are more enjoyable than others. Is there not a self righteousness that comes from that? For me, uh, if yeah, am I not becoming the Pharisee who says, "Thank God I'm not like that guy." Like, yeah. yeah. Um. I I don't. I don't see how you can pursue virtue without some judgment of acts. Say more. This is so a great point. I, you cannot say that one thing is better than another. Like you, you cannot go through all of life without making some sort of judgment, right. especially about the deeds of man, 
right? So I, at some point, have to say that shooting up a movie theater is not morally good and that giving to the poor is better and that I, I living a life serving the poor yeah. is better than shooting up a movie theater. I now, mean, granted that there is there is an, an inner truth that should go with that. And I think that was part of what was going on with the Pharisees is that they had all the outer workings of goodness with none of the inner working intention. Yeah. But I don't necessarily know that that's what's even talked about in ancient writings, that they want the inner person to be just as well-ordered as the outer and the outer outer person to be flowing from a well-ordered inner place. And what I understand from the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes is that they had a higher place in society. Mm -hmm. They considered since they followed all the rules and not always well, Mm -hmm. they, they were better intrinsically than another ordinary man and their inner life could be terrible, right? They were whitewashed tombs. But don't, I mean, I think people will agree with your example, your extreme example of the, 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 the life of the person who murders innocent people is less uh, good or is less desirable than, but like move into something a little bit more contentious. Like if you say the life of the person who lives for wealth and ease and watches Netflix every night right. and does a job that they kind of tolerate just so they can have enough money so that they can feed their, you know, their, uh, um, their entertainment pursuits in the evening and take vacation, like, like go into and paint a life of kind of just, um, pleasure indulgence and then say that is a waste of time in that person's life because of all these missed opportunities. I think then when you say that you get a lot of pushback and you say like, whoa, 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 who are you to judge how someone spends their time and how someone spends their life? And, and I think, I mean, the answer sounds arrogant it's like well there are there are better ways to live life there are better ways to spend time that are actually going to make one more happy um and also going to benefit the community that that person is a part of Mm -hmm. um and i feel like we don't have a taste for that argument as modern people can i read the next excerpt because it ties in beautifully with what both of you are saying i think it's i think it ties together the two points that you're making that before you do can i just say that people who do have more of a taste for that kind of argument are high school kids are like people who have more of a taste for that are people who are at the beginning of thinking about what the rest of their life is going to be like. It's hard to do it for logic age kids because they're not really thinking about the, their life. They're thinking about like their day. Uh, and high school kids are like h- halfway between thinking about their life and then thinking about their immediate day. But because they haven't gone full throated into a way of existing in the world yet, um, they're at a signpost. They're, they're at not a signpost, and so then they actually have ears to hear the argument yep. of like there are ways that you can waste your life through like small, um, 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 small little giving, you know, strategic retreats or giving ins, giving in to your sort of your basic desires of of um, yeah. of wealth and ease or whatever you want to call it, as opposed to fighting and pushing maybe for something a little more meaningful right. uh, and requiring a little more sacrifice. This this quote is not the one I was planning on reading, but it ties in with what you're saying. This is earlier in the book than the next one that I'll read. The consolation of philosophy is a consolation of philosophy. Although most people prefer the consolations of food, family, friends, liquor, gossip, pornography, video games, movies, drugs, sex, laughter, vanity, fanaticism, and amusement, which means the consolation called me to abandon many of my favorite sanctuaries. And so that's mm-hmm. that's what you're getting at of... Even in high school, the students have those sanctuaries right now. Yes. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. Um, and they either practice mm-hmm. those and then will continue will continue to look for their solace there or they'll be called out of them. But they're still early in them. They are. And it's easier to get out of them. 
Yeah. That might be something. Uh, that, that's a theory. I mean, that's that's. Uh, yeah. Or at least I need to believe that as a high school teacher. <laughs> so the the one I was referencing before, the wise man. This is probably this is seventy pages in. The wise man knows what stage of life he is currently in, but keeps his eye on the next two stages of life. The dating man goes to the engaged man and says, "What does the de- the devil try next?" The engaged man goes to the married man and says, "What does the devil try next?" A wise man will begin making room in his spirit for both the pains and the temptations of the next stage. Movement from one stage to the next happens both by nature and by human striving. In the early stages of life, a man naturally becomes stronger and more dexterous. Greater ability means greater responsibility. If a young man believes that he will inevitably become an adult, he is right in a certain sense. There's a kind of intellectual and spiritual maturity which tends to go along with physical maturity, but the former does not naturally outpace the latter. Maturity takes place when the responsibilities of the next stage are undertaken before they must be overtaken, Mm -hmm. and the allowances of the present stage are abandoned. Uh, Later in the same paragraph, what this means is that a young man or woman, let us say, recognizes that in American culture, a certain lenience is granted for teenage foolishness, a love of silly music and comic books, giggling, gossip, petty flirtation, chapped lips, slovenly appearance, crass jokes, mindless chatter, and so forth. If an adult embodied all these predictably teenage idiosyncrasies, that person might be thought mad, but much leeway is granted for teenagers in these things. Upon realizing that his foolishness is merely being given leeway, a prudent teenager sees that the right to terrible music and wrinkled clothes must be renounced in order to move into the coming stages of life. And he goes on from there. I think that is a piece of this answer of what is the, why should we live a good life? That's the, that's the fundamental question he starts with at the beginning. And a piece of that is to be a better adult, mm-hmm. to be a better person as we move into later stages of our life. Don't want to push back, comment on that idea? No, uh, what I've never thought about before is that, um, yeah, instead of saying like, ah, kids will be kids, let them wear his wrinkly clothes and listen to his crappy music one day, one day they'll come back to school in 10 years to visit us and we'll, re- you know, they'll have like things, they'll have their life put together and they'll like better music. Um, and realizing that that's kind of like a bit of a cop out that no, you need, that maturity comes with trying to play the part or or t- taking shoulder in the responsibility of the part before you have to shoulder the responsibility of the part have to shoulder the responsibility of the part um i agree there's also part of me that's that gets a little nervous because kids especially younger kids naturally want to do this when you're 12 mm. you want to be an adult and that can bear itself out in mannerisms and behaviors and decisions about dress and makeup and language that like, they think are adult. Great. And, but it's not actually. And it's not actually adult. And I think a lot of parents say, oh, I'm losing my baby girl or I'm losing my little boy and he's growing up and becoming vulgar <laughs> or whatever. Um, so. Uh, but it's not, it's not growing up. Yeah, it's right. not. That's, yeah, that's the thing. It's not growing up. It's, it's, they're only doing what they think adults, adulting, being an adult is. Yeah, so I I do know that as as children, I'm they not often wearing my shirt is r- too wrinkled for this. <laughs> I know a lot of those things. I was like, ooh, <laughs> better but make then, sure my lips aren't chapped. Um, and he, he'll talk about this later, but he'll when he when he gives an assignment to students, he is also doing that assignment. He tells a story of one of the uh, one of the test questions he gives for the constellation of philosophy is that you must write a debate with philosophy and pick whatever sin you're, you're dealing with and have that debate with philosophy. And if philosophy wins, you need to repent or tell your parents or make it right or whatever. 
well, he did this too. And well, I bet that gets that gets a lot of parent emails at the school. Which, but, but don't you want those emails? Like that means your kid is like dealing with that sin that they've been trying to hide. And all that to say, he did that himself and and came to uh, be honest about he had had some responsibilities that he was supposed to be doing as I think a department head or something to that effect. And he had been shirking them and then making excuses. And so he owned up and said, I was doing wrong. This isn't, I do not mean to come on here and be like, man, high schoolers, they better like get ready to be adults. I'm saying like, I think this applies to us also. Well, what I'm saying is that high schoolers want generally to have the responsibilities and mannerisms of adults to a certain extent, right? They, yeah. They would like to grow up and have those freedoms. And sometimes that manifests itself in rebellion from parents. And I think that's them wanting to be their own thing and go and do their own thing and take on things that they perceive as adult in the world. And what we can do is instead of giving allowance, you show them here is the right way to be an adult in the world and give them real stakes with things that matter and give them real responsibilities and introduce them to good music and talk about why why appearance can matter and in certain situations and maybe when appearance doesn't matter so much and i don't know walk them through some of those important choices that they will have to make before they're adults instead of the random assimilation that sometimes is what ushers them into adulthood taking snatches of what they perceive to be forward movement how do you give students real responsibility i feel like in an in a school the the real responsibility they have are is their academic work their school work that they have to do um um, but I think a lot of the times why we don't want to give students responsibility is also because we don't have to deal with when they fail that responsibility. Part of me thinks like if we said, all right, we have, um, well, for example, like we have, let's say a sc- hypothetically there's a school dance and a student wants, and who has been DJing wants to DJ it, DJ it. Um, and that is a lot of responsibility for an enjoyable evening versus somebody you can go and hire somebody that's doing it before. Uh, has done a lot of it before. Like giving that student responsibility is a good thing for that student's maturity. But if that student completely like bombs the night and plays songs that no one loves, or is just or is not a you know just yeah, in, in his immaturity or her immaturity does not do a very good job, then you've kind of like then there's a crappy dance that's happened. Yeah. And so we have to deal with that sort of fallout. So and I feel like a, a lot of schools and institutions are just nervous about giving students public opportunities to fail so they they don't well they don't and they don't have the time to and they don't have the time to, prepare to clean the student. it up like yeah yeah instead you could have someone who knows what they're doing talk to this kid and make sure they know what they're doing so mm-hmm. that it isn't a grand failure and you don't have to f- deal with the fallout but mm-hmm. that takes time and money and the cleanup provided he fails is a another bunch of time and money that mm-hmm. you don't want to spend and possibly difficulties and it's just it's just smoother to not give them any stakes mm-hmm. but if we really want to teach then stakes are needed yeah, I agree with everything you all are saying. As Dean of Student Life, we have a student congress, so a group of student leaders who have said they want to be in a position of leadership and they want to do more work. They want to do do things that support the school. And so my this is my second full year at the school. And so my goal this year has been to give them those opportunities, give them those positions, give them those projects. And it is terrifying, but I have been impressed time and again at what they've done that people this year at, we just, 
we are recording this at the end of our homecoming week. We have a homecoming dance tonight, which makes me nervous that Graham is using a DJ as his example. So we'll see. No, we've used, we've used student DJs in the past and they have worked out well. Correct. And, and I think that that's been a good thing for people, you know, um, I was, I was why I happily, I, for those listeners who don't know, I typically DJ all the dances. It's why I happily step aside. Right. And partially because I know they're not going to take my job forever. (laughs) They're going to grow up and leave. Mm -hmm. And partially because like, even if they do take my job forever, that means that I have done mine, Mm -hmm. that they have grown up. They have taken some sort of industry in the world around them and I can find something else to do. And that's in, in the only point I was going to make is that I've been trying to do that this year of equipping the student leaders to do that work instead of me doing the work for them. And they, I, I, I'm worried to say this in a public way because people will then give me the criticism that they haven't been giving me before. But I, people have told me time and again, that this is the best homecoming they've, they've been to in years. Well, what did it take for it to be the best homecoming for me to step out of the way <laughs> and to let students run it mm-hmm. and to equip them, but from behind the scenes. So now I can't really take the credit, but I'd rather take the credit. Anyway, all this turns into uh, there are things that Thomas has to deal with, but it's a better event for opening it up and letting students have something on the hook. So the thing that I get worried about is the things that we give students responsibilities and have them grow. So DJing dances, letting them help run homecoming. I think of a lot of the students that go through any major sports club at our school are put in those positions of responsibility. If you don't block the guy and your quarterback gets sacked, like it's on you. I don't see very many opportunities the way that we, not just this school, but the way that we have schools structured and set up for those kinds of things in the classroom. And one of the reasons why we don't do that is because we feel like the stakes are so high, we can't have the students fail because if they failed at a certain age, then that's going to look bad in college transcripts and they're not going to get into colleges, even if giving them better and higher stakes is better for them. Now, we are not a school that never fails students. I mean, we we give failing grades. Um, But I feel like just grades in and of themselves don't meet the needs of this handing over responsibility enough. But that's why I love that this event, that this homecoming week was led by four students Mm -hmm. and each each house knows who their representative is of that four, and they're the ones who are on the hook on the hook for it. Mm-hmm. Like if there's a if there's a problem with it, it's on them. But it's been successful, so they mm-hmm. get to get all the credit for it. Mm-hmm. This is AJ. This is a piece of what you were saying before that part of the way that we we don't give a grade in this because the grade is given by their peers. Yeah, it's it's the amount of respect they get for doing good work. Mm-hmm. And so we try and do that, and we don't always do And isn't that how we sort of do writing lab now? At least it's the way I do. Is it less grades? I don't, I don't give any, typically, I, or I very, give, very rarely give grades for writing lab. Every once in a while, I have to collect it just to make sure they're not phoning it in. Right. But we do, an, do some sort of work, and then we will edit that in front of everyone mm-hmm. the next week. And I try to dissociate names, but knowing that your work is going up in front of your peers and then seeing how that goes... That's the responsibility. It's yeah. it's the responsibility of any writer, right? I don't. The yes, I might get a grade from the public and that they're going to give stars on Amazon, right? Right, but that doesn't really matter. Uh, that doesn't really matter. And yeah. what really matters is their response to it and how well respected it is, yeah. right? If I get one or two one stars, it's not a big deal so mm-hmm. long as people buy and enjoy my book. Yeah. If people don't buy and enjoy the writing in the classroom, well, that's another form of responsibility, and it allows them that a little bit of room to fail mm-hmm. at it. Can I? 
read the next quote because I think it also it yet no. again ties in. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think it kind of ties in Graham with maybe your. Yeah, I'm going to read this and then see if it addresses some of what you're thinking because I think it relates. Once, when teaching an Old Testament history class, I asked a class of seventh grade boys to write a sermon to their classmates using an event from the life of David as their text. Tell your classmates what they really need to hear. Tailor the sermon to seventh grade struggles, I said. Over two-thirds of them wrote sermons about the slaying of Goliath, wherein they exhorted their classmates to take courage and share the gospel with unbelievers. This was apparently the kind of generically pious thing many had learned to responsibly say when asked about anything pertaining to the Bible. I love this story is one of my favorites. Sorry. So they were taken back when I told them God did not need them to share the gospel with anyone. By your own report, most of you are bored in church and rarely read your Bibles, I said. So I don't know why you think you are competent to share the gospel. Most of you... <laughs> oh, distracts on fourth grade or seventh grade? Seventh, seventh grade. <laughs> most of you are so disinterested in God that it is like pulling teeth to get you to sing a single hymn in chapel every morning because you are quietly joking and laughing with the people beside you. You don't really know what the gospel is. And if you tried to answer difficult questions about the gospel, I'm fairly certain you would get most of the details wrong. No, God does not need you to share the gospel. What God needs from you is obedience and small rules, the kind of rules you can get away with, the, the kind of rules you can get away with breaking. God needs you to be willing to be embarrassed in front of your peers, which is the one thing you hate the most. God wants you to do what you don't want to do. Tell your classmates to put away their phones when they pull them out in the restroom, because that's a violation of school rules. God wants you to confess your secret sins to your parents and get help with problems you can't master on your own, problems which you sink further into every day. And when your classmates mock you as a saint for doing these good things, God needs you to stand there and take it. Telling yourself that your chief spiritual need is to repeat a gospel that you are bored by and confused by is a way of getting around the most urgent matters of your spiritual health. (laughs) Did he make him redo the assignment? He doesn't. I think he ends it after that. He doesn't say. But isn't that so good? Anyway, does this get at some piece of what you're saying? Yeah. Because there, there will never be grades for the things that really matter. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Right. There will never be grades for the things that really matter, except, I mean, there isn't. A, or the, what I tell my students is there's only one assessment in your life that matters. And it's the one that happens after it. Right. Um, um, I how we can How we can organize our, how we can set up our our instruction to hammer home those those ideas is something that I think is a undeveloped wing in this classical movement. So uh, someone wrote a tweet on classical education, I can't remember who it was, uh, may have even been Josh Gibbs himself, saying that, or he may have been quoting somebody else, that sort of the wave of this resurgence of classical education has kind of come in three waves. The first one was understanding classical uh, materials, so rediscovering that these books are good to use to teach. And the second one Who was, knew? Yeah. And the second one was understanding <laughs> classical pedagogy, that there are ways of teaching these books that are, that are good to teach. And the third wave that we are either in right now or starting or desperately need is some sort of understanding of classical assessment. Yep. How do we assess people? If, if classical education is supposed to build up the good man, the good woman speaking well, the virtuous person, how do we assess that meaningfully? while also slotting them into this, to this uh, modern system of, of higher education that the students need to go through in order that they can have some kind of uh, interaction with our modern marketplace. Um, I've joked on this podcast, like many, many podcasts ago, that, um, uh, that I like having the thought experiment of how would we organize a school if we weren't having to educate students for college. Like, their colleges still existed, but we didn't have the same paradigm of AP tests, SAT scores, standardized testings, and this kind of 
um, uh, you know, like the, the, the students going out and doing these very um, various hoop jumpings that they need in order to apply for the thousands of schools that you guys have in the United States. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, if that wasn't a thing that they needed to do in order to live comfortable lives in our modern world. Um, uh, what would we keep and what would we discard uh, as a school? I think that's a very fascinating topic, but I mean, give an answer. Not a, not a succinct an one. I mean, one of them would, I think it is, is, is the one thing that I focus on. I'm sure there's lots of things that I haven't thought about. In fact, I know there's lots of things I haven't thought about, but one of the most succinct ones is this idea of training up in terms of, of assessing virtue. And I think that does imply needing some kind of public uh, showcasing of what is successful, yep. which we don't really have right now. You give them a grade, you give it back to the student. The student, if they don't want the grade, comes to you and you and that student talk about it. But it's very rare that ever... I read out great answers to a test mm. from a student, or I read out a great essay to the rest of the class, and I say, this was a really great paragraph. So maybe that's a small way that you can do it. Um, but anyway, that's, I, I don't know. Um, but that, I mean, that sermon assignment, it sounded like he, in the back of his mind, knew, knew, the, top, knew the thing he was going to say when he gave them the assignment. But, and it just um, verified what he or thought. Or it just verified what he thought. I want to know what the other 20% of the kids wrote about <laughs> Maybe they're. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Maybe the one third actually got it. Yeah, maybe there's yeah. one little, one little actual Jonathan Edwards in there or yes. something. <laughs> I am sinful. Yeah. All right. Any other comments on this on that story? I do love that story very much. I think, mm-hmm. and I agree with what you're saying. I, I almost just want to say that you shouldn't beat yourself up because you do. You are the lead of the thesis program. There's a public element to what we teach, and part of what we look at in thesis is in their persuasiveness their ethos is something we we speak to yeah but and i would say that and then people want to know wait no put everything through the computer algorithm and tell me who is statistically the best which we'll never do which we'll never do because it's cause that's not how persuasion works but i would say that's one of the things where they learn the most right? yes. often when because kids come back they say thesis has been one of the like hardest things and best things i've ever done yeah well it's one of the only things that actually had some sort of public stakes, public result. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Then this gets toward the end of the book where he is kind of wrapping up an answer to why be good in, in America, our consolation in times of material loss is typically hope for greater material gain. And so when a man loses his job, his friends are apt to tell him, I'm sure God has something better in store for you. Or when a young woman's fiance unexpectedly calls things off, her friends say, God has someone even better for you out there. However, were, were Lady Philosophy to tell Boethius that God had something in store for him, which is better than his life back in Rome, it would ring false. The young woman suddenly unengaged has a reasonable expectation of a long life ahead. And the same is true for a man in his 40s who must seek out a new career. But Boethius is slated to die soon. The blank slate of the future has become small enough that very little may be written on it. Is it possible he will get a reprieve from his sentence at the last second? Of course. And it is possible the young woman will find a better man as well, and that the unemployed man will find a better job. But it is also possible that none of these things will happen, and everyone knows this. We have all heard uh, we have all heard tragic stories of suffering wherein a man's material prosperity dried up suddenly and completely while he was yet young, and a family of four went from the penthouse of middle class all the way down to the basement. The better things God has had in store for such people were not material goods, but spiritual. As a shallow person, I am often terrified 
that God has genuinely better things in store for me, for I know <laughs> that genuinely better things typically come at the expense of pleasurable things. Treasure in heaven comes at the price of treasure on earth, and I love the pleasant things of earth so much, I have little to look forward to when I die. Earthly pleasure can lead to sanctification and epiphany, and we should taste and see the Lord is good, as the psalmist says. However, seeing the Lord is good is not the result of every taste, and an overabundance of tasting, di- of tasting distracts from our ability to see the Lord is good. All tasting must be done in such a way that we see the goodness of the Lord, not merely the goodness of his gifts. Obsessions with the gift is contempt. I'm sorry. Obsession with the gift is contempt for the gift giver. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, modern world, don't, very rarely do I encounter a student, or very rarely do I even encounter it in my own heart, the, the idea or the belief that the future could be worse because God wills it so that my soul can get better. Yeah. Now, I don't think students naturally think that way. I think in the West, we don't really think that way. We think, well, you know, the iPhone 18 is going to be better than the iPhone 17, which is mm-hmm. going to be better than, you know. Like, we, we think that sort of time progressed forward means things increasing, like things are getting better. Um, and then that plays into the advice that we give or that plays into the platitudes that we give to somebody who is going through something crappy. It's like, oh, well, just, you know, tough it out and it'll get better. Uh, God has some, yeah, better, something better in store for you. Um, it is a sobering thought. Um, but I realized that like, on the face of it, it seems gloomy, but when I actually think about, well, what, what does it actually engender in the soul that believes it? It is gratitude and thankfulness for what you have in front of you and a desire to like maintain and care what you have in front of you, as opposed to risking it all for the better future that you feel is inevitably going to come. Um, um, Amanda has been in a job for a long time and maybe a couple years ago, she was feeling a little dissatisfied with it. And then um, she had some advice from a colleague, which said, or from someone, she, she, she said, what do I do? What, what I do whenever I'm starting to feel dissatisfied with job? She said, what do I do now almost on a regular basis is I interview. I interview for other jobs all the time. Jobs I even know I'm never going to take just so that I can like remind myself of what I have mm-hmm. and just so that I can like stay just just to, to remind myself that you know the grass is not always greener, that another institution is not necessarily going to be um, a move is not necessarily going to be an upward move. Um, I think those are, that's just, that's, that's, that's wisdom that I think we don't have a lot of. That's why I feel like you got, you gotta have a crummy job as a teenager. Yes. It's a necessity. To, have, to be able to compare it to Yeah. That. I know this job is good because I had some bad ones. Yeah. 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 At least I'm not at Krispy Kreme, I guess. Yes. Is that what your job was? Yeah. I yeah. What at, were your, what were your jobs? Oh man. Your, your bad jobs. Worked it's, at Kroger for a month and I hated it. So I got a job at Krispy Kreme and I did that for, I think three years of high school. How was Krispy Kreme's? Not great. The donuts are wonderful. I didn't like the people. This Krispy Kreme has since gone out of business, so I'm not worried about them listening. Huh? I had a couple. But I do enjoy Krispy Kreme donuts. Those are good. If you are a person who owns pieces of yeah. Krispy Kremes and would like to we have one in North Austin. donate or sponsor, mail Krispy Kreme donuts to classical stuff at. <laughs> <laughs> wait, no, I will yes, give you the physical them. address. Yeah, email them. Nope. Um, I worked at a grocery. <laughs> email the donuts? Ugh. I worked at a local grocery store. It wasn't very good. Uh, and it was just. You know, it was kind of a crummy job, didn't pay very well, and it was a grocery store. I was a tree planter one summer where I got five cents a tree, and you just hoof it in the bush planting trees, and you're covered in bugs, and sometimes you encounter animals that are 
not happy you're they're around. Cro- they're cross. And they are, they are cross. They are wroth. And um, <laughs> five cents a tree, and if you plant them wrong, your little foreman will come up and pull your trees out and say, plant them better. And then you lose the five cents? Well, you, get, you, you only gain the five cents of the trees that actually go in, so you oh. lose time is what you lose. And um, to plant more trees, that job was hard <laughs> and not fun. But I look back on it with like a badge of honor. <laughs> you made yeah. it through that. Yeah. I, I got the same kind of thing. I worked a couple of bad jobs. Not that the, not that the companies are bad. It's just a hard job. Mm-hmm. So I worked for a place called RentX that has since been bought. But we rented event stuff, supplies, like chairs and, you know, awnings. And we also rented heavy construction equipment. Our uniform was steel-toed boots and jean shorts. Are you kidding me? Nope. And a Gross. blue polo, not not cut off jorts. Oh, so we're talking like oh. knee length jean shorts, still, but still not still, great. That's rough. That's, that's with a... steel toed boots and a blue polo. So just the real awkward blueberry that. Oh my goodness! And, and all day I was covered in gasoline and oil because people would return the things and then I would have to, you know, service it to get sure. it back out on the lot and ready to go. And people are not kind to things that they, they rent. rent. Yeah. And there were. Yeah, and I was bad. I didn't know how to work engines or anything. So I, I'm, I'm fairly positive I could have injured several people just based on the way that I serviced equipment. And I just, it was, you got there at like 5 a.m. and then you worked until 6 and you went home. And you're so tired that all you could do was eat, shower, and then go to sleep. Yep. And you woke up and smelled like gasoline all the time. It was a hard, hard job. Mm-hmm. And you didn't make very much. Like I worked my whole summer and made 2,500 bucks. Like it was just hard. You're proud of that? I'm so you proud of that. It, yeah. and, but now I look back and I'm like, yeah, I'd rather be a teacher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure. And then I worked at a camp and the, I had a huge failure of my own. I was supposed to run the games and skits and everything and got overstressed and didn't know where my supplies were. And there was just a miscommunication between the administration. They didn't know that I, I didn't even know I had like a costume closet until a weekend. Just like they assumed I knew a lot of stuff I didn't. And yeah. I just was young if I failed. So hard jobs, man. And, but now I can look back and say, mm-hmm. I have good bosses. I have good colleagues. I have purpose. So like that. this uh, last one is not really tied in with anything else. I just think it's a very funny story. So I'll read this and this will be the last one we cool. can wrap up every December. I ask students to make a, to make Christmas wish lists, which I hang around the classroom for a few weeks. Most students write down a few things they actually want, then devolve into far-fetched desires for Italian sports cars and fancy girlfriends. One year, a student turned in a list. Or Italian girlfriends and fancy fancy, sports cars. (laughs) One year, a student turned in a list which sounded something like this. One, LeBron James rookie card. Two, PlayStation 3. Three, LeBron James replica jersey. Four, LeBron James autograph. Five, iTunes gift card. Six, LeBron James is my personal bodyguard. Seven, a door that leads into the brain of LeBron James, which I can freely enter and exit at will. Eight, the power to destroy LeBron James's body and soul in hell. Nine, more iTunes gift cards may or may not give them to LeBron James. Freud would have a heyday with such a document. <laughs> anyway, I, don't know. I just think that one's really funny. The power yeah, to destroy LeBron James's body and soul in hell. That's number eight. That one came out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, I was really, I was thinking fanboy right yeah. up until that one. Well, if he said, oh, or fan student. He has it in here where he says that the transition actually happens between five and six 
where LeBron James is my personal bodyguard. That's mm-hmm. like when he wants control over him. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's when it starts the downward spiral. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is a model for uh, the great turn in the list takes place between the fourth item and the sixth, wherein LeBron James goes from being an idol to a slave. The enslavement of the beloved takes on divine qualities in the seventh and eighth, wherein the boy longs for godlike power, which can be used to know the beloved from within. He goes on from there. Anyway, I just thought that was really funny. Anyway, <laughs> I wonder if LeBron, LeBron James's ears are burning being called the beloved. Well, <laughs> he, he listened to our podcast, so LeBron, if you would please send us an email and tell us what you think about this. Yep. Um, oh my goodness. Wow. Yep. All right. That's uh, how to be unlucky. I wonder what that report card was. Uh, just <laughs> failing and kicking There were some school. parent emails yeah. on, that, on that one. Email to the parent. Yeah. They would deserve it. But yeah, highly recommend the book, How to Be Unlucky, Reflections on the Pursuit of Virtue. You can find it on. So what's your takeaway when you read this? Like what is something that you, that has, I mean, yeah, obviously I there's lots of reflection, but what has been. Sure. And I think it's what we just went through of a, one way to approach the question of why be good is that it is that virtue and being good makes for a better life, um, a better, a better life than the life of vice. This is, I think it's Aquinas who says that it's better for the wrongdoer to be caught and punished. I think Mm -hmm. actually might be from the constellation of philosophy. So apologies in advance, but it's better for someone who is in sin to be caught and punished for that sin because otherwise they stay in sin and they make themselves miserable. But constellation of philosophy is just condensed practical Aristotle. So Yeah, so Aristotle's <laughs> the best. There, ergo, Aristotle basically said it. So Yeah, but Boethius is easier to read. <sighs> but Aristotle's better? Not, I don't know. Um, Aristotle, it's it's, it's kind of like with, with, a, with a band where whatever CD you first listen to of that band will be mm-hmm. your favorite one for mm-hmm. them. And so in the same way that Aristotle was the thing that put like my career life choices into a tailspin, that that's the one that I'm going to cling to probably for the longest. You mean Aristotle Reading had some me- harsh things to say about a life of being a banker? He did. He de- yeah, about you? the life. Well, yes, for sure about the life of of wealth and the, and the pursuit of money for money's sake and everything he says about merchants. Did you have one book? You, so Aristotle was, was the... I took the Nicomachean Ethics to me during yeah. my eight-week training cool. with my previous employer and like... I would do bank training for 12 hours a day and I'd come home and read that book and it just like messed and, me up. Well, but you had a very, do you have a book? Do you have, do you, do you credit one book? I know you have lots of books. Do you credit one book with like being something that was a big watershed turning point book? The answer can be no. I'm just wondering if you have one. I don't, I don't think I have a lot of big watersheds. I have a bunch of heavily influential books. Mm-hmm. Weirdly, they're almost all Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. For me, The Abolition of Man is that book. It's I read it at a critical room. time right. and it, completely restructured what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do it from, yeah. And I, and literally like I read it in a summer and by the end of the summer I had restructured and reorganized all of my majors and minors that I was taking in school. Yeah. Mere Christianity was a big one. I went through uh, in seventh grade went through a period of doubt. And then the screw tape letters as I was growing and trying to figure out how to be a man mm-hmm. and, Weight of Glory as a teacher and just a general person. I learned, I read that one in college. And the mm. abolition of man here as a teacher. Like there's, it's it's a lot of Lewis. Like, weirdly mm-hmm. enough, mm-hmm. it's a lot of Lewis. And I might, I kind of feel bad for that, but dude can mm-hmm. write. No, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a piece of a piece of it is that the book is about yeah, the book is an answer to why be good, and a piece of that is that we are always preparing for what is next in our life, and we either go kicking and screaming into that next stage, or we die to ourselves and we go into that next stage. Hmm. So hmm. there's a grim- As someone who is going to be a future, like who just bought an empty plot of land and is building a home and then like having animals and growing things on that. And I now realize that I have all of my weekends for the rest of my life are going to be filled with jobs. 
when yep. up to now all of my weekends have been like emailing my building to change my light bulb. Right. <laughs> I'm realizing. I don't want to reach that high. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> this is this is sinking in that I'm like, um, yes, I need to enter into this new phase with much more mature, perhaps more maturity. Oh, yeah. it'll be great. Chickens are hilarious. That's good. They're just a constant source of fun. Excellent. Sounds miserable. In in the same way that we're in our my wife and I are in our first home we had rented before moving into this home. We've recently been having a very minor problem with a doorbell that I just have not wanted to learn how to solve. And so we've anyway, like I am being dragged kicking and screaming into being a handyman, whereas I could have just manned up and done it in the mm-hmm. first place. And so it, this book is very practical in that regard of it. It applies to all of us. All Sorry, of us have, Sarah and Amanda. Yeah. They, we, we all have something that is next for us. So what's a minor problem with a doorbell instead of going ding dong, it goes it. like dong, ding. dong ding. I really don't want to talk about it. It's such a pain in the butt. We, <laughs> the, the, hey, <laughs> yeah. The, Poking like, just goes, Hey, it just starts yelling at hey. us. Uh, yes. <laughs> anyway, there's a small piece of hardware that needs to be replaced and I didn't realize that. So life is difficult. Yeah. Anyway, Cool. That is it for this book. Please go yeah. buy it. It's very good. Sounds interesting. Um, Josh Gibbs, if you're still listening, first of all, congratulations that you for making it this long. Made it this long. Uh, that's, that's fascinating. And we get we don't get we're not sponsored by Josh oh, Gibbs. Yes. In case you're wondering why we're pitching his book, it, we, there's it's no, just we're pitching his book good. because Thomas read it and liked it, and yeah, now yeah. I'm intrigued, and I'm sure Hamburg is intrigued too. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can I do a basically classical stuff we got wrong? Yes. yes. So my I attempted to quote the Bible and bombed. So the verse I was attempting to say was James two ten. The NIV, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. There we go. That's oh, there. and a classical thing I'd like to add. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, maybe is that a thing that we can do? Fair we can do that. I want to add so much stuff all so, the time. But the podcast is like too long. <laughs> so back going back to my Song of Roland podcast, I forgot to say some of the cool things about Charlemagne's sword, Joyous. Mm-hmm. In the hilt, it has the spear point that stabbed Jesus while he was on the cross hmm. from oh. the mm-hmm. guy. And weird thing kind of side mentioned, it changes color 30 times a day. That's weird. So he's got a rainbow sword That's with a cool a, sword. the spear point from the, what do they call that? The spear of woe? La- uh, I don't think it's a spear. They, it's, um, there's, a, there's a name for it. There is a name for it. Whoever well, had it in long, battle. Longinus. L-O-N-G-I-N-U-S. Yeah. Whoever has it doesn't lose a battle. The Holy Lance, also known as the Holy Spear, the Spear of Destiny, the Lance of L-O-N-G-I-N-U-S. Spear of Destiny. All right, cool. Anyway, I just wanted to add that. Thought you might enjoy. Awesome. Well, this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know with Thomas, AJ, and Graham. You can email us at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can find us at classicalstuff.net. You can tweet at us at gluskalstuff. Gluskalstuff, that's it. Um, And (laughs) I will like things and tweet back at you and uh, retweet articles of stuff every now and then. And, um, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for staying with us in our hiatus that one week we took off a couple weeks ago. But at this point, that'll have been... Yeah, weeks ago. a couple weeks ago. Yep. But I'm just saying, like, you know, we could have We're lost sorry. we could have lost some listeners because yep. of our maybe people only listen to podcasts because of the weekly posting schedule. I'm thinking because of the they they the only thing they care about is fidelity, is faithfulness to a timeline. Maybe, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> which I, don't, weird I don't care what they talk about. Yeah, I just long want it to happen it happens every week. Um, anyway, we thank you and uh, see you next time. Well, and Krispy Kremes, if you're willing to oh, work on that to, email yeah. donut technology, we are all it our over way. it. We're ready. Mm-hmm. 3D printing. I mean, there's there's methods. That's it's all. I'm future. Saying. I can't eat any of those ever again. Sorry. 3D donut printing. I cannot eat a Krispy oh, Kreme donut ever again. Sorry. Bye. Bye. Bye.